0: Good morning, church. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 34. I'll be looking at verses 29 to 35, or you can just look at it there in your bulletin. It's printed for you, Exodus 34, 29, 35. It's a question you have become accustomed to hearing. What are you afraid of? What causes you more fear than anything else? Now, maybe you have been here long enough. You're saying you're, well, Robertson, not only have we heard that question, we're on to the answer. You ask these questions at the beginning of your sermon, and it's just like a children's Sunday school class. The answer is always Jesus. We know that by now. We're on to you. The answer is always Jesus or the gospel. Yes, that's right. You figured me out. But given our correspondence, given the conversations that we continue to have, which are no different from correspondence and conversations I've had throughout the ministry, it seems like we've forgotten it already. We've forgotten it since last week. And the confession, true confession of your pastor is, I forget it every day too. I forget that Jesus is the answer. I forget that the gospel is good news. It is the answer to all our needs. And apparently Moses was prone to forget it too because this is the fifth time he goes up the mountain. Moses has seen God high and lifted up. He's he's felt the mountain tremble. He's seen the lightning He's heard the thunder. He's heard it five times. He's seen the presence. He's been in the presence of God. He keeps forgetting what he should learn. The same gracious God who continued to teach Moses teaches us, reminds us of the good news today. I want you to look beginning in verse 29 as we read from God's Word, Exodus 34, 29 to 35. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses didn't know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with the Lord. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades but the Word of our God will stand forever. A woman in my congregation called me in many years ago. <clears throat> she said, I'm worried about my husband. I, George, I'm afraid he's losing his mind. Well, that was startling. I. This was a, a jovial man. He was a happy-go-lucky guy, and He'd had some surgery lately, had a, a, a knee procedure or something. I thought maybe there's a complication with this medication. Maybe he's, he has cabin fever. It uh, can't be anything very serious. So I went over to his house. This man was not a new Christian, but he had started taking his faith more seriously in recent years. He had started reading his Bible very regularly. He was going to worship morning and evening. He was engaged in Bible study. He was praying regularly. And uh, here he was in his chair in his living room, and next to his chair was his Bible on the stand, and, and it was uh, well-worn. And, and he pointed to the Bible, and he said, George, I've been, I've been reading in the book of Isaiah, and it terrifies me. I, I can't even sleep at night why is that book in the Bible? I said, "Guy, what uh, what chapter are you in?" He said to 34. Just read 34. Well, I sensed that the Lord was doing something in his heart, so I didn't want to interrupt it too much, so I remembered that uh, historically we've viewed Isaiah in two parts, said the Chapters 1 to 39 of the, is the book of judgment, and the chapters 40 to 66 is the book of comfort. So recently he would have read, in chapter 33, he would have read a verse like this, Are you, O oh, you destroyer who yourself have not been destroyed? When you have ceased to destroy, you will be destroyed. And traitor, when you have ceased to betray, you will be betrayed. Or he would have read in chapter 34 something like this, the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their hosts. He has devoted them to destruction. He's given them over to slaughter. I realized that as he was looking at the, at the news This is many years ago. He was seeing that uh, he was hearing the commentators say, you know, this is the most election, the most important presidential election of our lifetime. And he was reading, he was hearing many years ago, he was seeing rioting. He was hearing commentators say, our economy is melting down. He was hearing commentators say, foreign enemies are going to invade our land and take us over. He was hearing those things, seeing those things. But he was reacting in a way that is different from the way many of us, myself included, tend to react. And that is to look at the news and to listen to the media and say, those bad people out there. What is God doing to them? He was reacting this way. In them I see myself. I, like Isaiah, have seen the Lord high and lifted up, and his, the train of his robe filling the temple. And I look at myself in comparison, in contrast to him, and I say, Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people among an, of unclean lips. I am ruined. He was not comparing and contrasting himself to his neighbor or to somebody else or to some other category of person. He was comparing and contrasting himself directly to the Lord, and it terrified him. I said, Guy, uh, I want you to keep reading. No way. He said, I've got to keep reading that book? I said, he said, it has 66 chapters in it. I can't take... I can't take 40-something more chapters of this, like 30-something more chapters. I can't do this. I said, just keep on. It gets better. And after you've read chapter 40, I want you to call me. We'll visit again. He became a speed reader overnight. He got to chapter 40. And he read, comfort, comfort ye my people. Tell my people their warfare is ended. I have... I've canceled their sin. I came back to his house. By the time I got back to his house, he was in the in the fifties, and I said, uh, "Guy, what are you trusting in?" Now he would have said just a few months before. He was a proud man. He was a great. He was a. He was a kind man, but he was a proud man. And he would have said something like this. He would have said, well, I'm trusting in the Lord. But you know, you've always got to be prudent. You've got to be wise. You've got to make your way in this world. You've got to watch your back. This time he had a very different answer. I'm trusting only in the Lord. There's a phenomenon there that every one of us must experience. There are only two points in this passage, the transcendence of God and the immanence of God. The transcendence or the otherness of the holiness of God and the eminence or the nearness of God. But before you can ever appreciate and live in the comfort and the confidence and the courage of the nearness of God, you and I must realize the reality of the transcendence and the otherness of God Moses encounters that transcendence as the people of God encounter it in verses twenty nine and thirty we the the people of God finally become privy to the under to the conversation that Moses has been having with the Lord for a couple of chapters that we've been privy to, but they haven't been privy to. Moses comes down from the mountain and his face is shining and it's not just it 's not just luminescent like some some uh, uh a lifeguard down in Miami or something this is this, his face is shining with beams of light that are intimidating and terrifying they're, they're, The Hebrew is vivid they 're projecting from his face that 's why in, in medieval art sometimes it's, Moses is pictured with horns coming out of his of his head, but uh, that can't be, I mean, you can't veil horns. It's, It's his face that's shining in an intimidating kind of way because he's been in the presence of God. Now, there are two ways to respond in a deadly fashion to the transcendence of God. When you come face to face with the fact that God is not you, He is totally other, and yet he demands that you are perfectly conformed to him. When you come face to face with that, there are two equally opposite deadly extremes. One is presumption, and the other is panic. Presumption is the one we're most familiar with, and it's the one that Moses was most familiar with. Moses had seen God numerous times, and yet he tended to presume on the presence of God. That is, he he got comfortable with the presence of God, with the transcendence of God, and, and he presumed on it. And God had to wake him up at times. God, uh, God told him at the burning bush, you better take your feet off, your feet off, yeah, take your feet, take your shoes off because you're on holy ground and you could, you could get killed. He had to stand in his way when he failed to circumcise his son. He had to wake him up and said, you better, you, if you don't circumcise him, I'm going to kill you. You're messing with the holiness of God he, he had to tell Moses you 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 don't have an option of whether or not you're going to obey me you're going to do what I tell you to do when Moses when Moses was took out his anger on God's people God had to say you have to sanctify me as holy before the people. I'm gonna, you're not going into the promised land. God had to wake Moses up. Even the leader of the people of Israel, the one who had seen God, he had to wake him up. He had to, sh- he had to humble him, knock him to his feet, knock him to his face, and say, I am God, you are not. And if we are going to live in the comfort and the peace, The truth of the gospel, the same must happen to us, not just once, but over and over again. Because we are those who presume on the transcendence of God. There's a philosopher that some of you have studied, Descartes, who famously said, Cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. You don't have to understand that philosophy, that particular philosopher, to understand the philosophy, which is a common one in our culture. That is, whatever I think is real. Whatever I think, whatever my opinion is, that is what is real. That is what is true. And furthermore, if you don't think that way, if you don't, if you don't agree to the same reality, well then I'm going to dismiss you. And now we live in a technical age which reinforces that warped view of reality. We live in a technical age that reads what we prefer, what we like, what we pass on, what we what we follow. And then by algorithms it makes sure that we're constantly getting fed the same thing and we're concluding we conclude then that uh, well, you know, I am seeing things the right way because everybody else agrees with me. And those who don't agree with me, well then I have the permission to unfriend them. Or they don't agree with me, then I can cut them off. I can change the channel. In fact, if they don't agree with the way reality really is, which is the way I see it, then I can then I can treat them as less than human. Oh, just the other day I had to face this. I had to face this reality of what's happening to us. Technically, I opened up my computer. I was I was uh, doing a search for uh, for something on my sermon and. And, I, you know, I, I thought, you know, it, a wonderful thing is happening in this country. Everybody is getting into fly fishing. Because no matter what I search for or what I look for on my phone or on my computer, something about fly fishing comes up, some, some advertisement. And I said, this is a secret to the healing of our nation. <laughs> that um, people are finally seeing things the right way. And, and if I were a, a, a politician, I would say... I would say, what America wants is to fly fish. And if you elect me, I'll put a fly rod in every person's hand. That's what I thought. And then I realized I'd been shopping for a fly rod. And some genie out there read that and has now attached fly fishing ads to everything that I search for. The same thing is happening to you and me echo chambers are being created for us and we use them as uh, absolute we absolutize our perspective and we can even come to think you know God actually agrees with me God votes the way I do God thinks about race the way I do God thinks about the economy the way I do and God thinks about children and parents and God God thinks just like I do he's so smart there's an interesting story in the in the Old Testament, Joshua five, as Joshua is leading the children of Israel into the Promised Land, succeeding from Moses. And in Joshua five, he is uh, he's been he's been battling all of these enemies. And, and, uh, and the, he hears something in the middle of the night. And he gets up, and there's a there's a man standing there with a the sword. And, and and Joshua jumps up with his sword, and he goes over to him, and he says, "Are you with the armies of the Lord? Or are you with or are you with the enemy?" And the man is the angel of the Lord, pre incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ holding a sword, and he answers no. It's like he didn't hear the question. He was asked, Are you for us or you're against us? And the answer is no. Meaning, you're asking the wrong question. It's irrelevant. Whether I am for you or against you, what is only relevant is, are you with me? We must put blinders on our eyes and start with, what does the Lord think of me? What does the Lord think of this situation? Because he puts a sword over all perceived reality and he says, I'm telling you, by the power of my word, that word which is able to divide bone and marrow, I'm telling you this is what is true and this is what is not. I put the sword over this country and I say this is of me and this is not. I put the sword over the respective platforms of the political parties and I say this is of my common grace and that is against me. He puts, it over, he puts it over every worldview. He puts it over uh, various races. He puts it over various socioeconomic strata. He puts, it over, he puts it over your family. He puts it over your church. And he says, this is of me and that is not. He puts it over your pastor and he said, this is of me and that is not. And he puts it over you. And he says, you are not the one who determines what is reality or what is truth, I do, by my word. Now, there's another extreme, a deadly response to the transcendence of God, and that is panic. You see, the, these, when, when this shining face this shining, this reflection of the transcendence of God comes to the people of Israel. They run, including their priest and Mos- and Aaron. Now what's that going to do for them? It's, it's reminiscent of, of Adam and Eve. When God comes to them in their sin, they run and think that they can hide in the bushes. So running from... The transcendent God is not an answer, trying to hide from Him. And yet we try. We try by, by, by hyperactivity. We, pry, try, we try to dull the sense of His presence with, with pumping noise into our ears constantly. Now, there, it, it, is, it is true, it is realistic for us to feel a panic Relative to the transcendence of God, the Bible tells us that every one of us is born with a conscience and an awareness that there is a God who is there, and He is other than us. And even if we deny the existence of God, the Bible tells us that there is a certain fear and dread of Him. I've been fascinated with that theme for a long time because it was my experience before I became a Christian. I had this, before I knew who Christ was and how to be saved, I, I, had this, I had this terrible dread that there was someone, something out there, and I wasn't right with it. I've traced that theme through the Bible. You can see it, for instance, in Psalm 53, when David is describing some of his, some of his enemies. He said, they are terrified when there was nothing to be terrified of. There was nothing there, obviously, to be afraid of, but they were terrified. You can see it in, in literature. British Romantic poetry is some of my, is, is, is my favorite poetry, nerd alert. But, here, but in, in, the, in the British Romantics, one thing that I like about them is, is that they're, they're, they are honest about this. They sense that there's something out there, and it's overwhelming to them. Very few of them discovered that it was Christ. Samuel Coleridge did, Samuel Taylor Coleridge. William Wordsworth never did. And through the words of, through the, the voice of another person, he told his own story in a poem like this. He says, my apprehensions come in crowds. You see if this doesn't resonate with what you're feeling perhaps or what other people are feeling. My apprehensions come in crowds. I dread the rustling of the grass, the very shadows of the clouds. The very shadows of the clouds have power to shake me as they pass. I question things and do not find one that will answer to my mind. And all the world appears unkind. Well... People like Samuel Coleridge initially tried to find a relief from that dread through opium. And others of us try to find a relief, dull that, that panic in unhealthy ways. That's deadly. It is right that we feel overwhelmed by the transcendence of God. He is holy. He alone is holy. He is light. Only in Him is true light without shadow of turning. But we must not presume on that, and we must not panic and run from him. The only solution is the one that comes next in verse 31. Just like the Bible is prone to do when there is a tragic incident, when there is is bad news, there is a redemptive conjunction called but. Verse 31, they were afraid, they ran from him, But Moses called to them. And when Moses called to them, Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to Moses, and Moses talked to them. This is the eminence of God. It happens when you turn to him as he is revealed in salvation. Salvation. But you never turn to him that way until you 've first been overcome by him. Now Paul explains to us theologically what is happening in, in, uh, in this incident he 's in second Corinthians chapter three in the early part of second Corinthians chapter four. Paul explains to us theologically what is happening, this veiling business and the sunshine and uh, the, the shining face of of uh, Moses and so forth. We don't have time to turn there. I just want you to make it in your notes, but I'll, I'll unpack ever so briefly what a few points that Paul makes about that passage. Number one, he tells us that, that God finds us with His Word. That when we are overcome and panicked, in realization that we are sinful, that we are broken, that we don't see reality perfectly as he does, and we are dropped to our faces and our knees, God comes to us with the word of the gospel. The gospel is this. You cannot be united to God, save from His judgment in your own efforts. All you can do is admit that you are what the Bible says you are, that you are as sinful, that you are as broken and desperate as the Bible says you are, and God has made a way through Jesus Christ, and all you do is receive Him. God comes at you with His Word to announce that. And when you you hear that, it change, when, you, when you grasp hold of that gospel, it changes the way you pray. We, we do it in the, in the Lord's prayer. You see, before, when we're outside of we're trying to stand in the face of God on our own, He is first transcendent and then there's no hope of eminence. But, but when we come to Him in Christ, we learn to pray, Our Father, who art in heaven. We begin with His nearness, and then we acknowledge His otherness. God comes to us by His Word. He, he causes His Word to announce to us the true gospel. And so this, this shining business on, on, on Moses' face is the confirmation that the Word that He is announcing to them is reliable. This is, this is not just an, an abstract thing. This is God revisiting Sinai to them, all of those magnificent confirmations of Moses as the author of Scripture now come and they're reflected in his face and God is reminding them, this is my spokesman and he is telling you how you may be united with me. You can trust the gospel. Now he veiled it, not just because it was overwhelming, but he also veiled it, Paul explains to us, because because that glow was temporary. He'd fade away, and he'd have to go back into the tent. He would have to get more revelation. So God was saying to them, this is not all there is. I've got a whole lot more to tell you. I'm going to unfold it in redemptive history. It's eventually going to be manifested not just in a spoken word, but the incarnated word of Jesus Christ. So Paul makes another point that not only does the word find us and shine shine on us and announce to us the good news, God glorifies us. That is, God communicates the glory of His grace to us in such a way that we begin to become beautifully conformed to His image. And and Paul goes on to say something that is spectacular. It's it's written uh, beneath the, the, um, the, uh, the atrium in our west entrance here. The skylight is there at the the atrium, and around the skylight is, is, is written these words. The reference is not there, but it's 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. The one who said, Let light shine in the darkness, has shown his light in our hearts, his light of the glory of God that we behold in the face of Christ. Not only does he announce the gospel to us When we come to Christ, Jesus moves in us and causes the light of the gospel to shine from the inside out. That's all I understand of that. I read that verse every time I go by it thinking, if I could just grasp how wonderful that is. And yet it's beyond imagination that God moves inside of us with Christ and, and reveals the sunshine of his grace. There's another point that Paul makes, and it is that that light shining on us from the gospel protects us from all harm. Martin Luther was the the father of the Reformation who... Who restored the pronouncement of the benediction in the worship service? For whatever reason, the Middle Ages they quit pronouncing the blessing. You came and you you listened to a service you didn't understand and a sermon you didn't you didn't uh, it didn't make sense to you. And then the then they said goodbye to you. There was no and, and Luther said you've got to understand the gospel. You have got to hear it in words you can understand. And and then you need to be sent forth with the blessing. And this one in particular from number six: May the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And Luther said that that blessing of God shining his face on you is intended to convey this that he will lift up the light of his word on us and so keep it over us that it may shine in our hearts with strength enough to overcome all the opposition of the devil, of death, of sin, adversity, terror, or despair. Is there anything frightening you that is left off that list? And When you see, when you have an adequate view of God. Your inordinate fears are diminished. We have inordinate fears when we have an inadequate view of God. And the adequate view of God includes not just His transcendence, but His coming down in the person of Christ in His imminence. The old hymn says, Jesus, I am resting, resting. Jesus, I am resting, resting in the joy of what Thou art. I have found out the greatness of Thy loving heart. And as You make Your beauty rest on me, I become the very sunshine of my Father's face. Brothers and sisters, what frightens you? There can be nothing and should be nothing to cause real terror like the person of God. But the one who says to you, you are justified in Jesus Christ, makes all other fears irrelevant. Come to him. And rest in him alone. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, help us not only to believe this truth, but practice it in our confident living and in the grace we extend to others. In Jesus' name we pray it and God's people said together, Amen.